Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. This is chapter 38 this morning as we continue our our little journey through the book of Genesis. What's the first thing that pops into your minds when I mention these two names? Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer. Infamous serial killers from the 80s and 90s who were known for their gruesome acts of violence. Jeffrey Dahmer was sentenced to 15 life imprisonments. Ted Bundy was sentenced to three life imprisonments. What you may not know is that both of these men professed faith in Christ while in prison. In 1994, Jeffrey Dahmer professed faith in Christ and was baptized. In 1989, if you remember, James Dobson of Focus on the Family came in and gave Ted Bundy his last interview before he went to the electric chair, and supposedly Ted Bundy professed faith in Christ. Now, I'm not here to argue whether these men are in heaven today or not. God only knows if it was a true, authentic conversion experience. But what it does do for us is it brings up a very interesting question. Does the cross of Christ extend to the most wicked person? Is there a person on this planet that is too sinful or has done something too heinous that he or she is beyond the reach of God's grace? Is there somebody out there that's done something so bad that they possibly could not be saved? Well, I've got good news for you this morning. If you're here this morning and you think you've done some majorly wicked things, if you think that you've done some such bad things that God could not possibly love you, if you are laden with guilt because of some things in your past and you, and you just think to yourself, God could possibly not love a person like me, then I've got good news for you today because the gospel reaches to the worst of sinners. There's nobody beyond the reach of God's grace and love this morning. And that's what we have before us in Genesis 38. Last week, we were left with a cliffhanger. Joseph, in Genesis chapter 37, was sold into slavery by his wicked brothers. This traveling band of Ishmaelites come upon the scene and they they send Joseph down to Egypt. And we remember last week that God's sovereign fingerprints were all over this event. And so we get to Genesis 39 and what we want to see in Genesis 39, I mean, sorry, we get to Genesis 38 and we want to see what happens to Joseph. I mean, you've, you've piqued our interest He's sold into slavery. What happens to him? And Genesis 38 is a royal interruption in the story. It has nothing to do with Joseph. Not one thing to do with Joseph. Not one thing to do with the story. We have to wait next week to, to find out the cliffhanger ending. And we're really engaged in this. 
Why, Moses, who wrote Genesis, did you have to stick Genesis 38 in here right now? I mean, and why, Moses, is he even in the Bible? This is some pretty graphic stuff, Moses. This is some pretty racy, sleazy stuff. It's, it's graphic displays of sinfulness. Why is it here? Genesis 38 gives us the hope of grace in the midst of extreme depravity. Genesis 38 is a depraved passage of Scripture. I don't watch those Jerry Springer-type TV shows. Maybe you do. Hopefully you don't. But if there ever was a soap opera of Jerry Springer proportions, it's this chapter in our Bible. It's painfully immoral. It's decadent and sleazy. And we scratch our heads wondering, why is this in the Bible? And what is this teaching us? And so what I want us to do this morning is to dive into this chapter and ask that very question. What redemptive value does Genesis 38 really have? And it's divided up into three sections. The first section is Judah, the fourth son, his descent into depravity. The second section is Tamar's desperation and deception. And the third section is God's design and definite plan. So let's look at this first section, Judah's descent into depravity. And you will notice why I call it a descent, because it's a downward plunge into depravity. So let's read together Genesis 38, verses 1 through 11. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hirah. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her. And raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now, you'd expect Genesis 38 to just continue the story of Joseph. What happens when he gets sold into slavery? But we're introduced to Judah. And it starts out, it happened at that time. Well, what time? Right after the brothers sell Joseph into slavery, Judah does something that's shocking. He doesn't go back to his family. Two things he does here. 
just in verse 1 that tells us about his descent into depravity. First of all, it says he went down from his brothers. Yes, geographically and physically and locationally, he went down from his brothers. But this is a, this is a, um, a spiritual description of Judah. He went down. He's sliding downward morally. He's spiritually on the downward drift. And then secondly, notice it says he turned aside. He turned aside to a Canaanite. He went down and he turned aside to this Adulamite named Hirah. So he's leaving the promised land, and he's leaving his family to go make a home among the pagan Canaanites. And he's inflamed with a lust for this nameless woman, and he ends up marrying a Canaanite pagan. We don't even know her name. We just know that she's the daughter of Shua. And you may ask yourself, well, what's the big deal about Judah marrying a Canaanite woman? Why is it such a big deal that he's marrying someone outside the family line? And I have to remind you, what is Genesis all about? It goes back to Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman will one day crush the head of the serpent. It's all about the lineage of the coming Messiah, Jesus. And so Judah is going outside of the family to Canaanite pagans, and he's, he's messing with this seed. Because the seed comes from Noah to, I mean, from Adam to Seth to Noah, to Abraham. God says, Abraham, through your, through your offspring, the world will be blessed. And then it transfers on to Isaac, and then it transfers on to Jacob. And so Jacob is carrying the seed, and he has these 12 sons. What's going to happen now? Well, we know that the sons haven't had a very good track record. Son number one, Reuben, committed incest. Sons number two and three, Simeon and Levi, they were mass murderers. They went out on a vengeful killing spree and, and murdered a whole village. And now Judah, fourthborn, he's marrying outside of the family line into a Canaanite family. And both Abraham and Isaac, if you go back and read, the one thing they feared was that their sons would marry Canaanite women. It was the worst thing for Judah to do to marry a Canaanite woman, a pagan woman. And he gets her pregnant, and, she, and they have three kids. Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Now, you have to ask the question, how, how much time are we talking here? Long enough for these boys to grow up and have wives of their own. So Judah, shockingly, doesn't go back to Jacob and his brothers. He stays in Canaan for a long time. He stays in that, in that Canaanite pagan lifestyle for a long time. And then he has three boys. Don't want to name your son Ur. God killed him. The very first time in the Bible, God actually kills somebody. We don't know what Ur did to, in, to incur God's wrath. The text doesn't tell us, but it must have been pretty bad for God to kill him. The text very clearly says there, verse 4, she conceived, I mean, verse um, 6, and Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. So Tamar's husband is dead. 
Now, there is a custom in that ancient culture that the, the second son, the brother-in-law, had to fulfill the conjugal, the conjugal duty, if you will, to make sure that there's offspring. And this may be really weird to you guys, and we don't do it in our culture, but the brother-in-law is supposed to go in and basically ensure that Tamar has children because Ur was not able to have children. And so Onan goes in, and he's supposed to basically impregnate Tamar so that she will have children. But Onan knows something. He knows that if she has children, those children receive the inheritance from Judah, not him. So what does he do? He practices coitus interruptus. If you know Latin, parents, go tell that to your kids. I'm not going to go any further than what the text tells you right there. But it's sinful because notice what it says. Read it carefully. Verse 8. There is a play on words. The word seed is translated offspring in there. But this verse 8, all, let me read it to you how it literally verse 8 says. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to raise up seed for your brother. But Onan knew that the seed would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste his seed on the ground so as not to give seed to his brother. Look at verse 9. Whenever he went into his brother's wife, this wasn't just a one-time thing. He was enjoying the thrill of sexual intimacy, but not fulfilling the brother-in-law right that he was supposed to to make sure that the seed was passed on. And this was so wicked that God killed him. It's all about the seed. Is the seed of the woman going to eventually come through the lineage of Jesus? And so Judah's messing up the seed by marrying a Canaanite, and his kids are messing up the seed by practicing not birth control, but another type of... And don't, by the way, side, side note, this is, not, this is not a lesson on birth control, okay? This is, this is something... This is a specific issue, so, so you know, don't worry about getting killed by God. If, never mind, I'm just not going to go any further. <laughs> so, we're going to move on from that. So Judah's the dad, and he's like, okay, son number one's messing around with this Tamar. God puts him to death. Son number two's messing around with this woman. God puts him to death. I have one more son. There's no way I'm letting him mess around with this woman. She must be cursed. She must be the problem. He's very superstitious, and so what does he do? He basically lies to her. What does he say to her? Verse 10, and what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death. Then Judah said to Tamar's daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house. Tell Shelah that the thirdborn grows up. So he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Basically what Judah's saying to Tamar is, listen, you know, both your, both your husbands have kind of died by the Lord. Why don't you go live as a widow in your dad's house? And when, when Shelah grows up, when he's old enough to marry You'll get a chance. You'll get to marry him. Does Judah have any intention of giving Shelah to Tamar? No. So he basically sends her out to live in her father's house. He should have taken care of her. Judah should have been the protector. But no, he says, this woman is cursed. There's something wrong with this woman. Let's just let time pass. And you ask the question, 
How did Judah descend so quickly into paganism? How quickly did he turn aside? How quickly did he spiral down? You want to know how quick it was? It came from making compromises with the most intimate of relationships. Who are his closest relationships in this passage of Scripture? This new best friend named Hira and a wife. You know what the Bible says about being unequally yoked in intimate relationships? Best friends, husbands, wives. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14-17 says this, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. Do not be unequally yoked. And so what does Judah do? He gets unequally yoked with Hira, his best friend, Canaanite, and gets unequally yoked with this nameless Canaanite woman. Now, this does not mean that we shouldn't make friends with lost people and that we shouldn't do evangelism and that we should never have friendships. But what it's saying is, in your most intimate of relationships, you need to be very careful that you don't yoke yourself together with someone who's not a believer. Very rarely have I seen marriages where a a spouse knowingly goes into a marriage unequally yoked and they end up being the stronger one usually ends up the other way where the believer ends up making compromises married to the unbeliever and that's what happens to judah he went down from his brothers he turned aside he is on this downward descent into sin. And we have to ask again, where's God in this story? Did God make a wrong choice? Did God's plan somehow get messed up? God must have made a wrong choice by selecting Jacob's family. God, you know, you're really, you're kind of on your throne, God. And you're semi-sovereign God, and I believe you're, all, you're sort of all-powerful God, but, you know, when it came to this family, you really got it wrong, God. You chose the wrong family. No. God is still sovereign. God's still on his throne. And yes, God chose this family. And we look back and say, why in the world is God still messing around with this family? Why is God choosing this family? Why is God showing grace to this family? All right, let's move on to the second section. If the first section focuses on Judah's downward descent into depravity, the second section focuses on Tamar's desperation and deception. She's a desperate woman. Okay, she's a widow twice. Two of her husbands have been killed by God. And she's waiting around for this third husband to, to somehow become of age. And so she's basically been locked away in her father's house and now the, the tables turn, and it's time now for her to be of marrying, for the son to be of marrying age. And, and what does Judah do? Does Judah come true on his promise? So let's explore the second section, Tamar's desperation and deception. Let's pick up in verse 12. In the course of time, when the boy was old enough, 
The wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with the veil, wrapping herself and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me, that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, And he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where's the cult prostitute who was at Anaim at the roadside? Excuse me. And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I've not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. And Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. She has no future. And she says, Deception, too, can play at that game. I'm going to deceive my father-in-law. In In the course of time, actually 20 years have passed. And Judah's wife dies and he's comforted. And now comes the time where Judah says, you know what? I've mourned my wife long enough. It's time for me to get back in the saddle. Let me go enjoy some sexual pleasure that I am entitled to as a hot-blooded, red-blooded American man. He's not American, but you can kind of put that in your... your, your, your. So he says, okay, I'm going to go to the sheep shearing event. I'm going to take my buddy, Hiro. We're going to go up to the sheep shearing event. The sheep shearing event was a time where a bunch of guys got together and there was partying and there was drinking and there were the call girls that kind of lined up for their services. And so here's what Tamar does. She changes her clothing. Now, remember last week I said clothing tells a story in the Joseph narrative? Pay attention to the clothes. What does she do? She takes off her widow's clothing and she puts on prostitute clothing. She dresses like a prostitute. And she positions herself out on the road where Judah would come in. Now, you have to ask the question, why did Tamar think up this scheme? She knows something about her father-in-law. It's a custom-made plan for his weaknesses. She's lived with this guy and seen this guy for 20 years. She knows about his sexual temptations, his sexual immorality, his weaknesses, and so she makes a custom-made plan to trap him. 
So she dresses up as a prostitute on the side of the road, and Judah has no qualms about going into her. I mean, notice what it says. Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the cross side, or at the roadside, and said, come, let me come into you. No qualms, no thinking twice. Hey, I'm just going to enjoy some time alone. I, I deserve it. My wife's, you know, I mourn the death of my wife. This is what we do when we go to the sheep shearing events. She's a woman of the night. No big deal. No harm, no foul. I'm just going to go in there. I'm foolish. I'm reckless. I'm lustful. And this is prostitution. So she says, what are you going to pay me? Well, I'll pay you a goat, a young goat, which is a pretty hefty sum during that time. And she's like, okay. I know you don't have the goat with you, but can you give me a down payment? Because you could just leave this little 15-minute escapade and go on your way, and I don't have any payment for my services. Can you give me a down payment? And he's putty in her hands. She pays, plays him like a fool. Notice what she says there in verse 18. Or he says, what pledge shall I give you? She said, your signet, your cord, and your staff. Translation, I want your driver's license and credit card. The signet was like a signet ring that he would stamp either in a piece of clay and he'd wear it around his neck. This was his identifier. Only Judah would have that specific signet that he would wear around his neck. And then his staff, it wasn't just to walk around with, his staff was his family emblem. His name would be engraved on the staff. So basically in a fit of passion, he says, here, have my visa, have my MasterCard, and by the way, have my driver's license. I don't care, I just want to go into you. He's not thinking straight at all. He gives her all of his identity markers. He throws caution to the wind. And you have to ask a question, what makes men do stupid things like this? Lust does. Lust makes you stupid. Lust makes you reckless. Lust makes you do things you thought you'd never do. For 15 minutes of fleeting pleasure with the prostitute, he throws caution to the wind and gives away his entire identity to her. And it's her plan. And it's going to come back to haunt him. Would you do me a favor? Keep your finger in Genesis chapter 38 and turn with me to the book of Proverbs chapter 7. Instead of putting it up on the screen, I thought it would be easier just to look at it because I want us to read the whole text But if you want to know how lust and prostitution and sin and pornography and all these things trap, especially men, the Bible explains it in Proverbs chapter 7. The writer of Proverbs, probably Solomon, is is looking out his window. And he looks and sees a young man walking down the street to a prostitute. And he explains or describes what he sees. So let's look at Proverbs chapter 7, starting in verse 6. For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart, I think some translations said she's, she's crafty. She's loud and wayward. 
Her feet do not stay at home, now in the street, now in the market. At every corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. She's smooth talking. She's got it all planned out. Come over to my place. It'll be fun. My husband's not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home, meaning he's going to be gone for a long time. We don't have to worry about getting caught. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. Pretty graphic imagery there. Of the foolishness of lust, the writer of Proverbs says he's walking into a trap that's going to cost him his life. And that's what Judah does. Judah walks into the trap. He's inflamed with lust. He throws caution to the wind. He does something he thought he would never do. And he leaves his driver's license and credit card at the brothel and panics and has to go back in case he gets caught. So what does he do? He sends his friend. Hey, Hira, (laughs) I left my signet and my cord with this prostitute, and I promised her a goat. Would you go back and give her the goat so that I can get my stuff back? So Hira goes, and like everybody's like clueless. We never saw a prostitute here. Prostitute? We never. He looks and looks. He doesn't find her. He comes back and tells Judah, I couldn't find her. And he says, well, we're going to be laughed at if this comes out in public. Better just to let, let's just cut our losses because I don't want to be outwitted by a prostitute. She probably, she probably just played a trick on me. There's a prostitute out there that has my identity markers, but no harm, no foul. Eventually, she'll bring it into the open. Let me just go on my merry way and just kind of forget this all happened. But notice what the text says in verse 24. Three months later, first trimester, Judas sees that Tamar is starting to show, and she's pregnant. Now, how would she have gotten pregnant? According to everybody, she's been locked away in her father's house waiting for the third son to be of age. So obviously, she has gone out and gotten pregnant by immorality. She slept around. And so notice what Judah does. Verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Do you see the, the, the double standard in Judah? This woman needs to be burned at the stake. Forget the fact that I went out and dealt with prostitutes and I'm just kind of doing my own thing. It doesn't matter because I can do whatever I want. But her, she needs to be burned. He's been blinded by his own foolishness. Now you've got to ask the question, who's more wicked in this story, Judah or Tamar? Take your pick. Is going into a prostitute wicked? Yes. Is dressing up like a prostitute and filling your... Father-in-law wicked to get pregnant? Yes. 
neither one of these two get off the hook. But if you were to, to make a statement to say, who's probably more guilty? I would say it's Judah. And here's why. He's of the covenant family. He knows better. He's the man. He should have taken care of her. He should have provided for her. He should have done his duty as the father. And so here's the final card that she plays. You've got to love it. They're bringing her out to burn her at the stake. And she's like, I've got a final request. Um, I've got somebody's wallet and I've got somebody's credit cards. Can you please tell me who these belong to? And Judah takes them and, <laughs> there's my picture. There's my name. I mean, the signet cord, the staff. And all of a sudden, he realizes, oh, wow. I've been deceived, but I've been sinful. Notice what he says. Look at his confession. Verse 26. Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. This is a public confession of guilt. He's broken, he's distraught, he realizes he's sinned. And this is kind of the first glimmer of hope we see in Judah. Judah's going to emerge as the leader of the family. By the way, Joseph is not the promised seed. Judah is. And he's coming to a point of humiliation. This is what often has to happen. To foolish, reckless men, especially, who are sunk deep into depravity, sometimes God has to humiliate you to get your attention, to get you to repent. And that's what's happening here. He's been humiliated. And he confesses. And it's that forced glimmer of hope that we see of repentance in Judah. But there's one final section. God's design and deliverance. If the first section was Judah's descent into depravity, the second was Tamar's deception and desperation, the third is God's design and deliverance. Let's continue reading. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. Where have we seen this before? And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew his hand back in, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Two twins fighting in the womb. One holding something red and the other one coming out and, and, and trying to grab it. Genesis 24. Sounds like Jacob, right? When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, his body all hairy like a cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Who's the firstborn in the Jacob and Esau story? Esau, and he's red. Who's the firstborn in this story? Zerah, he's holding a red cord. Who's the secondborn in the Jacob and Esau story? 
Jacob. He comes out holding the heel. Who's the second born in this story? Well, Perez. Well, well, really, Perez comes out first, even though he's really second, because he knocks his brother out of the way and comes out as a breach birth. That's why his name's called Breach. And so the, the design of God a second time is that the firstborn son's getting passed over and God's giving the blessing to the secondborn. Was Esau the chosen son? No, it was Jacob. Is Zerah the chosen son, even though he was coming out first? No, it's this breach birth son. Jacob was a heel grabber. Perez is a breach birth son. And he's the son of the promise. Now, why do I say Perez is the son of the promise? Why is Perez the chosen seed? It's all about the seed. Where's the seed going to come from? Because we're left with Jacob. And we know the seed does not come through Joseph. The seed has to come through Judah. Judah and Tamar. A wicked, lustful man and a woman that dresses up like a prostitute. The, the chosen seed's going to come through these two people? Yes. Perez is the chosen seed. In the book of Ruth, there's a genealogy of ten names leading up to King David. Who's first on the list? Perez. The greatest king of Israel was conceived by two wicked parents. God chose the seed of the woman to come through two wicked parents. And if that's not crazy enough, we have another genealogy in the Bible. Go to Matthew chapter 1 for a moment. Matthew's gospel, the first book in the New Testament, begins with a genealogy. And you may think, well, I don't really like genealogies. There's a bunch of weird names that I've never heard of before. What's the point of a genealogy? Do you know what two names show up in the genealogy? Perez and Tamar. Is it too scandalous for you to handle that Jesus' lineage comes to a prostitute? Oh, by the way, there are five women listed in the genealogy of Jesus. And all five of these women had a bad reputation when it came to sexuality. Is that too scandalous for you to have to handle when it comes to the birth of Jesus? You would think that the names of the women that would be in Jesus' genealogy would be the big names of the Old Testament. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, Abigail, Hannah, Eve even. But whose names are mentioned? Tamar is first. Verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar was famous for being a prostitute. Who's listed second as the female? Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. Ooh, the lineage of Jesus came through two prostitutes. Is that too scandalous for you to handle? I'm not making this stuff up. It's in your Bible. Number three, Ruth is listed. Now, Ruth was a noble woman, but there was some spurious background related to her because she was a Moabite-ess. Four is Bathsheba, whom David committed adultery with. Is that too scandalous for you to handle? And number five is Mary, probably the most scandalous of all. She's pregnant and there's no father to account for. It's a virgin birth. God chose to bring about the promised seed, Jesus Christ, 
through a one-night stand between a prostitute and her father-in-law. Is that too scandalous for you to handle? I didn't think that type of stuff was in the Bible. I thought it was all sanitary. I thought it was clean. Why would Jesus' lineage come through this type of wickedness? Revelation chapter 5, 5 through 6 tells us who Jesus is. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Who's the lamb of God? The lion of the tribe of Judah. And we have to ask the question, what does this sleazy story of immorality have to teach us about anything? What it shows me is that if you're here today and you've done something pretty sleazy yourself, the lion of the tribe of Judah stands ready to forgive you. If you stand here today and you've done some things that you just can't believe you've done and you're loaded with guilt and you wonder, would Jesus ever love me? The lion of the tribe of Judah stands with his arms open, ready to receive you. This shows me that God's sovereignty reaches beyond the depravity of his people and his grace reaches beyond the depravity of his people so that God is a sovereign God and God is a merciful God and he can bring about the birth of Jesus through this type of depravity. Think about what he can do in your life and in my life with our great sin. If you think you're too sinful this morning, or you think you've done too many things that God would just not love you, or that you're so bad. Sean, you don't know the things I've done. You don't know my past. You don't know what things I'm guilty of. You don't know what's weighing on my heart. If if you just knew what I've done, you wouldn't accept me, and Jesus wouldn't accept me. May I just give you some good news this morning? Jesus loves to save bad people. And all of us fit that category. The lion of the tribe of Judah. He used bad people like Judah and Tamar to further his plan to bring about the birth of Jesus. Now you know why the story's here. It's not just a sleazy story about one night stand. This is about the birth of Jesus. No Judah, no Tamar, no Jesus. Does that shock you? Listen to Isaiah 59, 1 through 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Isaiah is saying, God, God can reach out and save you. His hand's not too short. God stands ready to save. God stands ready to rescue. The lion of the tribe of Judah stands ready to receive you. But your iniquity, your sins have separated you from this lion of the tribe of Judah. So what must you do? What must you do to receive the forgiveness from the lion of the tribe of Judah? You too must turn aside. How did this whole story begin? Judah turned aside. But he turned aside the wrong way. 
He turned aside to pagan Canaanite lifestyle. He turned aside to sin. He went down from his brothers. He turned the wrong way. What we need to do is turn aside the right way. It's called repentance. Repentance means you turn from the sin and you turn 180 degrees toward Christ and you turn toward him in brokenness, in repentance, in coming to him and confessing that sin. And when you do that, when you turn aside and you turn toward Jesus, you see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the slaughtered lamb, standing with his arms open, saying, I'm here too, ready, willing, and able to forgive all who would come to me in repentance and brokenness. But you've got to turn aside. You've got to turn. This is a scandal of grace. Why is it a scandal? Does the gospel make any sense to you whatsoever? I hope it doesn't. If the gospel makes sense to you, you don't understand it. <laughs> Let me say that again. If the gospel makes sense to you, you don't understand it. Because what, what is the gospel? A holy, righteous, powerful, almighty God who has every right to obliterate us off the map has chosen not to do that, but has sent his only son, born of a virgin, to come into this earth to live a perfect life that we could never live, to die on the cross for the sins that we've all committed, to rise again, and to offer himself as a pure and complete and holy Savior. And that's come through Judah and Tamar. That's a scandal. That's a scandal. God's grace is richer and deeper and wider than you could ever imagine. And yes, are we great sinners? Yes. But we have a far greater Savior in Jesus Christ. Would you bow before him today? Would you come to him in wonder and amazement today? Would you look to this lion of the tribe of Judah today? And no matter how far you've made your descent into depravity this morning, and maybe you're down in the pit or maybe you're on your way down, no matter how far you've descended, the scandal of grace that comes from Judah and Tamar's future son, Jesus, is far deeper and far more glorious than you can ever imagine. So would you cast yourself on his mercy today because he stands ready, willing, and able to save you. Would you spend some time this morning just sinking your mind into the depths of this scandal of grace. That God can bring about the birth of Jesus through Judah and Tamar. Think about what he can do in your life. Would you spend some time in prayer this morning? This morning, I can't help but think that in the room this large, there may be some of you that have come into this place and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are a sinner separated from God and that you haven't repented and you haven't trusted in Christ and that you know in the depth of your heart that you're not a believer in Jesus. And if that describes you this morning and you know who you are, would you for the very first time 
come to Jesus Christ in faith this morning? Would you stop playing games or trying to clean yourself up or stop wallowing in guilt and just come to the point of realizing that Jesus stands ready to save you? Would you repent and come to him this morning for the very first time? And if you're here and that describes you after the service, I would love for you to come up afterwards maybe and just tell me what you did or tell me what's going on in your life so I can pray for you. We want to be available for you. For others of you in this room, and you're a Christian, I'm speaking to Christians here, and you are struggling with guilt. You're plagued by guilt. And you wonder, does God still love me because I've done such terrible things? Yes, He still loves you. And yes, He still calls you to repent. And yes, His arms are still wide open to receive you. So no matter where you are this morning, every single one of us can relate to Judah and Tamar in some way or another. Oh, we may not be a prostitute or going to prostitutes, but we have sin in our lives that separate us from a holy God. And the only hope we have is the lion of the tribe of Judah, King Jesus. Lord Jesus, we bow before you right now. You're the lion of the tribe of Judah. You're the king. You're the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and you have absolute sovereignty. You have absolute power, and you are glorious and beautiful and mighty to save. And we bow before you. knowing that at the same time you're the lamb that was slaughtered. Your your shed blood was for our sins. God's wrath was for our sin. The punishment that you endured was for our sin. So lion of the tribe of Judah and Lamb of God that was slain, King Jesus. We bow before you right now. We surrender our lives before you right now. And we find forgiveness and hope and peace and joy and deliverance and eternal life in you right now. For those of us that are believers, Jesus, would be reminded of that truth And Lord, for those that are not in this place, would they come to the point right now, Holy Spirit, would you please, Holy Spirit, would you sovereignly bring about the new birth in those this morning that need to be saved? Holy Spirit, would you come blow like the wind and raise dead people to new life because they've heard the gospel this morning. We want to see people saved for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.